right, welcome back to From Eight Arbitration. And this is a Monday edition again of From Eight Arbitration. I was recording the episode yesterday, and about 35 minutes into it, I'm talking away and I look down, this thing ain't recording nothing. I mean, it ain't doing squat, so <laughs> I just turned it off, man. I was so pissed. I just turned it off, started watching a movie, so... <laughs> Uh, this is the Monday edition. I'm still in my uniform. I just walked in, but I've got a lot to talk about tonight. Uh, it's going to be a long episode and I apologize. I try not to make them too long. When I first started this thing, uh, I would talk to maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And people were like, can you please make them longer? We listened to them out on the route. So I started making them long, but hell, then they started turning about two hours. <laughs> so I was talking, was watching a, a uh, Facebook message the other day, and somebody was talking about from A to Arbitration, and people were like, it's just so long. He talks so much before the topic. <laughs> he, and then after the topic, he talks so much. <laughs> and then some people are like, you know, well, he, he doesn't talk enough. So I, I don't know. I'm just going to talk. <laughs> What I will start doing, I will start putting a kind of a timestamp on, on the episodes so you'll know when a certain topic starts. That way you don't have to listen to 30 minutes of me talking about nothing and it can go straight into the topic. How's that sound? I'll do that for you. See, I'm basic cable. You know, y'all, I think y'all think y'all getting HBO Cinemax, uh, HBO Plus, Showtime, paramount all that i'm basic cable <laughs> so <laughs> that's what we're going to get right here you're going to get basic cable right anyway uh got a lot to talk about today next week mr Kerf is going to be on uh we start um contract negotiations uh the 22nd i believe it is so he's going to come on next sunday the 19th so if you've never told anybody about Formate Arbitration, I never solicit you to tell anybody about Formate Arbitration. If you want to listen to it, listen to it. I will ask you next week, have people listen to Formate Arbitration. Mr. Kerf is going to be on. He's going to talk a lot about collective bargaining, what we're looking at. Going to be very informative. A lot of people are asking about that on social media, asking me about it. You're going to hear about it from Mr. Kerf next Sunday. So tell everybody that you know Listen to it next Sunday, all right? After that, we're going to have Mr. Jason Leith on. Hopefully, I can get him on. He's got a lot to talk about as well. He's been so busy, so I've hated to bother him. Man, that guy is busy, busy. So, um, But may try to get him on next sun, uh, the Sunday after next, okay? That'll be good. Um, another thing I'm wanting to do, I'm so tired of people messaging me saying they're not getting any training because they're business agent. What I may start doing is um, JB, the first Thursday of every month, he does steward training. Very good steward training. Uh, and it, they do it by Zoom. What I may start doing, if they'll let me, I may start uh, having that Zoom put out. And that way, stewards, new stewards, if you want to learn some more, you can listen to JB on Zoom. You know, I wish everybody would do that. You know, we don't have any secrets here as far as teaching and learning and uh, the contract. It is what it is. I wish every region would have a podcast. I wish every region would share their training. You know, it's all about training. I'll say that 
until I'm blue in the face. It's all about training. So whoever can help me learn, I want to listen to you. Whoever can help my people learn, they want to listen. So uh, may try to get that done. If it costs something, I'll tell the branch I'll pay for it. And that way, y'all can uh, watch JB on this Zoom. He's very, very good. All right, well, let's get to it. Um, a lot of stuff to go over today. I mean a lot of stuff. I'm going to go over the Article 8 as well today. That's going to be forever. But I've got so much stuff coming in people want to talk about or things that they want to talk about. Uh, I told them, hey, I'll just touch on it here on this episode. Uh, plus, uh, it'll be three weeks until I'm back because Mr. Karras going to be on. Hopefully, JB will be on. Then I'll come on. I think Mr. Poskin's going to come back on and do some Article 8 stuff. But uh, I'm just going to have to start making longer episodes. I apologize. And like I said, I'll start putting like a timestamp on the episode so you can see uh, if you want to listen to Like I'm going over T-Rap today, Publication 552 today, uh, 204B stuff today, um, Article 8 stuff today. It's going to be forever long. But we're just going to do it, okay? We'll just do it. <clears throat> T-Rap, let's start with that. It's a complete shit show right now on T-Rap. Um, management has turned this thing completely up on, t- on its head. Um, what's happened is when these memos came out, management, they, they think that we steal. I told you about that district manager saying, hey, if the carriers are going over eight hours, they're stealing from me. That's legitimately how they feel. Uh, mostly because they've never done anything like we do. So they think that we're stealing. That's because they steal. Uh, That's how management is. They know how they are. They're stealers. They're cheaters. They're liars. So they think that everybody else is the same way. So they think that the letter carriers are stealing from them. Okay? So they come into this agreement uh, where the union has agreed, you can watch us by scanners now. You can watch us... Uh, by scanners during this TRAP process, and and you can question carriers uh, based off of scanner data. And so management says, okay, we're going to do that because we'll finally get a good picture and show you all exactly what carriers do out there. They're stealing from us. Well, when you watch letter carriers every day, you'll see that what we do is go out and deliver mail. <laughs> That's what we do every day. We're not stealing from anybody. We give eight hours work for eight hours pay every single day. So management thinking that we're, they're going to get all these savings because they're going to prove that the carriers are stealing. In actuality, it proved that the letter carriers work their asses off every day. That's all it proved. So they're starting putting routes back in. Routes are coming in so much that they've run out of vehicles to give us for the routes that have come back. So that's what's happened when they finally take a look and see what the carriers are actually doing every day. They've had to put so many routes back that now they've run out of vehicles to give us. So here's what management has done now. They have turned this thing up on its head. It is a complete shit show, right? Uh, I have talked to at least four district REIT team people this last week that have talked about it. One was so frustrated, he said that he called his business agent and said, hey, you're going to have to put somebody else in here because management has put a stop to this thing. They're no longer 
crediting us with personal needs time. That's what they're trying to do. You go to the restroom, they're trying to take that out. Any personal needs times, management saying, we're not giving the letter carrier. That's what they're doing. They're sending teams of managers out. Now, these are things that REIT team members have told me. I'm not making this shit up. They're sending teams of managers onto the workroom floor, just like in a six-day count. Teams of managers to watch carriers, to watch them case, to watch them pull down. They'll follow them to the dock, watch them load up. They'll follow them on the street. That's That's bullying tactics, right? They're trying to bully carriers now. You're hearing more and more of these hour office times. That's based off of them getting their asses handed to them. You're hearing more and more of these of carriers being questioned about stationary events. That's because management is getting their asses handed to them. What's the old saying? If you can't beat them, cheat them. That's management right now with the TRAP process. They are cheating us because they can't beat us. Okay? So, the most important thing right now is for the letter carriers to do what you do. Don't be pressured. Don't be pressured by management in any way. You come in, do your job, and go home. REIT team members, you have got to stand up. We are counting on y'all heavily. You have got to stand up. Um, some people have messaged me talking about uh, the union REIT team member will will be siding with management when they do their care consultations and that the management counterpart and the union person will be laughing at the care saying, well, you know, you can't do that. That's absurd and stuff like that. Look, look here. Don't you ever, ever correct a city letter carrier in front of management. Don't you ever do that. If I'm the letter carrier and that's happening when in my care consultation, I'm getting up and walking out. That's what I'm going to do. Don't you ever correct a letter carrier in front of management. All right? I'm afraid that some of y'all are getting that Stockholm Syndrome. You heard of that? I'm afraid some of y'all are getting that. Y'all remember Patty Hearst, the lady who got abducted by the Freedom Fighters and ended up fighting with them? I think that some of y'all are getting that. You've worked with management so much that you're starting to kind of turn into that. If you see that happening, tell them the business agent that you no longer want to do it because you're turning into management. Okay. Don't stay in a position and hurt me and hurt my brothers and sisters because you're getting Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> All right. But carriers stick with it. Just do what you do. And we're going to have to rely on our union people to make sure that we're being taken care of. But the TRAP process right now is a complete disaster. Now, I think that they're trying to force the union to get out of it. That's what I think. Because it's it did not go as they had planned. Truly. Um, and that's kudos to those people that, that did it. Um, I, I still hate the memos. I hate that management has been allowed to take advantage of us because of the memos, and that's still going on today, and that's what I was harping on when they first came out. Management is still abusing my letter carriers because of the memos. Uh, so I hate them in that aspect. I think that it, it should have been done a lot different. But that's armchair quarterbacking, you know. Uh, that's what that is. But you're getting a lot of, right now, you're getting a lot of 
carrier is messaging me, sending me discipline, sending me investigative interviews, sending me where management is harassing them for these stationary events. Okay? I'm going to read some of it to you. Here's a guy who sent me this. He said, well, here's a funny one for you. I had an investigative interview today for stationary events on Tuesday. I was told 116 minutes total. I said, man, that's a lot. Well, where did you see me sitting around that long? They said they didn't, but the scanner pinged me at different locations. So they tell the different addresses. Now, here's the funny part. I was being followed by an outside team conducting 4584s at these exact locations. I said, well, maybe you should ask the examiner that was following me behind me at those exact locations. They may have a better answer than me. I was just working. Now tell me how that thing pings me when I'm working. I put it right back at them. I ain't answering this stupid crap they try to pull. Laugh out loud. That's a great answer. <laughs> here's, what, here's what this management team did. They come in there and they, they try to lie to this guy. They give an investigative interview on stationary events. He tells them, hey, I'm just working. They say, well, we had a special team following you on a 4584. <laughs> They're trying to get him to say, oh, they were? Well, hell, I was doing this and that and that. And this guy says, well, maybe you should ask them what I was doing then, which is a, a beautiful answer, a fantastic answer. Look, I'm going to tell you all what to say. I told you I wasn't going to do that. I'm going to tell you what to say in an investigative interview about stationary events. I was delivering mail. Can you tell me what you was doing on these stationary events? I was delivering mail. Well, this shows that you were sitting here for 15 minutes. What were you doing? I'm delivering mail. So all I was doing was delivering mail. This guy said, I'm, I was working. That's all I'm saying. I'm not entertaining anything else. I will not say, maybe I was doing this, maybe I was doing that. I am not saying that. I'm going to say I was delivering mail. You got three hours of stationary events. What were you doing? Delivering mail. I'm not entertaining anything other than that. So I'm going to tell you what to say right here. I was delivering mail. All right. That's it. That's what I'm going to say. Here's another thing somebody sent me. Hey, Corey, I had a PDI with a carrier the other day for stationary events. They were disciplined with a letter of warning with the charge obedience to orders. I have attached the PDI and the DMS report they supplied in my RFI. I also asked for the stand-up talk documentation, but the supervisor said there isn't any. Also attached is a discipline. For starters, if I could get any sort of documentation on every other carrier's DMS information that day, I'm sure I could prove that he is singling her out. But is this DMS printout even something they can use? Just figured I'd get your take on it. And here's the, um, here's the investigative interview, okay? And here's what it states. How long have you been a full-time regular carrier with the USPS? Four years. Are you aware that regulations permit you to only have a 30-minute lunch and two 10-minute breaks? Yes. The carrier asked, what about comfort breaks? And management had no reply. Are you aware that on Saturday, January 28th, you have been recorded as having multiple stationary events? And the carrier said, I'm aware today. Can you please tell me if the documentation, stationary event printout, is accurate in showing that you had multiple stationary events on January 28th. 
Carrie says, how accurate is that DMS sheet? I scanned packages in one location. It says I'm 300 feet away. Is it accurate? Did you ever contact management and let them know you were going over your lunch and break time? Answer, no, because I didn't go over my lunch and break time. Question six, is it true that you have had conversations with this writer in the past, example, service talks regarding stationary events? The steward asked if the supervisor was the writer, and the supervisor said yes. Answer, no. We've never talked about that before. Question, were you in attendance on January 28th? And if so, were you also in attendance for the service talk given on the day regarding stationary events? Answer, yes. I was here but I don't remember what the service talk was about. There are several di distractions, and we have them every day. So here's management fully questioning a carrier now about stationary events. Are you aware of the policy on stationary events? Are you aware that you were had all these stationary events? And the carrier just says, how accurate is that DMS report? Which is a good, good answer. How, how accurate is that? And they asked about going over lunch and going over break and they said i didn't do that which is good answers but but as the steward in those ii's i would ask them about where they're getting this information from where they're getting this data where they're getting this that i'm having a stationary event i think that as shop steward we need to start being more proactive in these because it's coming they're going to start doing this more and more okay uh, these trying to bully us on stationary events, knowing that they can't do anything only unless we answer the questions. So as shop stewards, when we go in there, we need to start having a proactive approach, something that can be put on the record when we get in these investigative interviews, right? When they say, are you aware that you've had seven stationary events? As a shop steward, I'm going to say, now tell me what says that. Where are you getting that from? From this DMS reporter, where, where are they getting it from? Now, how did you come about that uh, through scanner data? Are you aware that you cannot spy or use covert techniques against, the, against these letter carriers? We need to start being more proactive in these investigative interviews and do that for our carriers. Are you aware that you can't spy or use covert techniques? If they say, hey, I'm not going to be questioning here, I'm going to say, I'm in here to protect this letter carrier. And let the letter carrier hear you. All right. And, and I would say, being as you cannot spy or use covert techniques against letter carriers, I'm not going to let the carrier participate in this investigative interview. Because what you're doing is you've gotten it. You remember when I talk about ill-gotten gain, the fruit of a poison tree? That's what this is. This is fruit of a poison tree. They are, they are using something against us that by, by contract, they cannot use against us. They cannot use scanner data as the sole determinant for discipline. Now, they may say, well, if the carrier answered that, so we have the right to ask. I'm going to try to intervene as much as possible in that investigative interview. And I'm going to tell the carrier before we get in there, do not say anything other than I was delivering mail. Do not get into a dialogue with them about this. Do not say anything other than I was working don't say, I believe at that location. Don't do that. Don't entertain it. And call and be as disruptive as you can be as a shop steward in that meeting. Okay? Th that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say, where are you getting that from? 
Scanner data. Are you aware that you cannot spy or use code divert techniques against letter carriers in accordance with Section 134 of the M39 Handbook? Are you aware that you have to do street observations in an above-board manner? Are you aware that you cannot treetop? I'm going to ask him all these things. All these things are going to be in the record in that investigative interview. Okay? We have to be more proactive in these investigations. Because management is starting to do this over and over and over again. All right? I read you the questions uh, and the answers. Here's something else. Here's the letter warning. It says, obedience to orders. Specifically, on January 31st of 2023, you were present along with your union steward and me for a PDI regarding your failure to follow orders, which caused in multiple stationary events on January 28, 2023. On January 31st of 2023, during your PDI, you stated that you, were, that you reported for duty here at this station and was in attendance when the service talk was given in the station regarding stationary events. However, you continue to accumulate multiple stationary events. Because of this, you have de demonstrated the lack of understanding and commitment to the USPS. Your actions are in violation of the following section of the Employee Labor Relations Manual uh, 66515. And so that's the letter of warning. So they're issuing discipline now based off of stationary events. Here's a carrier that said, I don't believe that your, your, uh, your data is accurate. And I did not go over my lunch and break. And they still issued discipline based off of scanner data. This carrier said, I did not go over my break and I did not go over my lunch. And management still issued discipline to this carrier. That is because of these memos that have given management the authority to watch us during the route adjustment process with these scanners. So remember when I was talking about they're going to bastardize these things? That's exactly what's happening here. All right, so now we have carriers actually being given discipline based off of scanner data. Okay? Um, I told you about that, that complete fuck-up by my business agent when I had their ass on, on the scanner stuff. When I had those emails, remember I talked about that? Uh, we dropped the ball miserably on nailing management's ass to the wall on these scanners years ago. We could have had already a plethora of arbitrators' decisions against this very thing years ago, but we were too cowardly and chicken shit to go forward and protect our carriers. That's exactly what happened. I had their ass nailed to the wall, and we backed out of it because we were scared. Um, we could have already had decisions on this scanner bullshit. Uh, we, we've got to start fighting fire with fire with these bastards, okay? They're coming after our carriers. We've got to get our leaders to stand up for us and realize, hey, look, this is what's happening. Have y'all heard anything from anybody about this other than me? Has anybody said anything about these stationary events other than me? Has anybody said anything about how you're going to conduct yourself in an investigative interview or how the shop stewards can conduct themselves in an investigative interview? Has anybody heard anything from anybody from National about this bullshit? Why not? Is it just a fact that everybody should know? That's not the case. I promise you, there are stewards and stations that have no idea what's going on here. I assure you that. There are stewards that have no idea what's going on with this scanner bullshit. Why? Why are we letting our carriers sit there in this bullshit here and not helping and not educating? 
Y'all signed the memos. Y'all should be the ones out doing this shit, not me. I shouldn't have to be doing this. Y'all should be doing it. That pisses me off. <laughs> you know? I mean, damn, we have people being disciplined now based off of, of stationary events. Well, they've been doing that a long, long time. Now they think that they have the right to do it because of these memos. Well, the memos say what they say. Do they? Well, because i got to carry being disciplined now. So obviously they don't say what they say. Because the carrier's been disciplined. If they, if they said what they said, management would know they couldn't issue discipline based off of it. Here's another thing somebody else has sent me. This is a Facebook post. A gentleman had just finished the TRAP process. And uh, he put down this long synopsis about what happened. And every bit of it was good except this one part. He says, read the MOU that came out last May. It gives us an average of 22 minutes to load, 7 minutes to unload, 1 minute 35 seconds to get ready to push off for your next relay, 30 minutes lunch plus reasonable wash-up time unless your LMOU is specific on that point. We've been taking 4 minutes. In the evening, you have a reasonable wash-up time. Four minutes keeps you under the radar, it seems. Under the radar. That's what we. That's what it's come to. These times they put out. Now we're trying to keep ourselves under the radar because we don't want to get. You know, we don't want to get punished. We want to keep ourselves under the radar. I never thought in a fucking million years I'd hear that bullshit. Under the radar. It takes what it takes, folks. It takes what it takes. It takes what it takes to load. It takes what it takes to pull down. It takes what it takes to deliver. It takes what it takes in the afternoon when we get back. I'm not going to be under any time restraint whatsoever. If I'm working, kiss my ass. That's it. It takes what it takes. There is no 22 minutes of anything. There is no five minutes of anything. There is no seven minutes of anything. That's some bullshit that was put on these memos for the REIT team that management has gotten a hold of locally and is now saying that, that we're held to those things. They are conditioning us is what's happening. They're conditioning us to get into these 22 minutes, four minutes, seven minutes. They're conditioning the letter carriers. So basically what's happened is they are getting what they've always wanted. I have grieved this five-minute office time forever and have won that. Now they come out with these memos, and they're conditioning carriers to go by these times. We are being conditioned is what's happening because of these stupid fucking memos and the times that are put on there. Those times have nothing to do with me. That's something that a red flag comes up if I go over them for the REIT team. But local management is taking these, you know, you heard me talk about the district manager that time that sent out the email. The union has agreed that it's 22 minutes of load time and that it's two minutes of package and it's this. That's what they do. That's what they do. It takes what it takes. If I'm going out there to load them, they say you got 22 minutes. I'm taking what it takes. I'm just do, I'm taking what it takes. If it takes me 30 minutes, it takes me 30 minutes to load. You got five minutes in the PM. So I said, if it takes me 10, it takes me 10. You got this many minutes for package. It takes what it takes on packages. Don't be conditioned 
out there, letter carriers. Do not let management condition us that these are the times that we have to go by. Okay? Here's another one. This guy just put out there, Big Brother's watching, one hour office time, 20 minutes, two minutes to load, the geofence. Next, how many heartbeats? That's being conditioned. That's what I'm talking about. This guy's making fun of it, which it is stupid, but Big Brother's watching, one hour office time, 22 minutes to load, geofence. That's conditioning us. Man, y'all have got to be outside this geofence by this certain amount of time. Y'all got 22 minutes to load. The, the union's already agreed to it. Y'all have got one hour office time. That is conditioning the letter carrier. They are changing the game on us. And what, have you heard anything from National about it? Not shit. Nothing. Just grieve it. Y'all just do what you do. Y'all just do. Somebody say something. Fuck, so our leaders say something. Shit. Here's another one. A guy said that he had an investigative interview about stationary events, and the carrier goes in there. He says the carrier said he was loading mail and or talking to customers. Not sure it was the greatest answer. They were like 17 to 40-minute stops. So the carrier goes in there. I was loading mail, and I was talking to customers. That's what I'm talking about, folks. Tell your carriers before the investigative interview, shop stewards. Tell them, do not entertain this bullshit. I was working. I was delivering. That's the only answer they're going to get from me. I was working. I was delivering mail. Well, it shows here that you're, what shows there? This RIMS data, this scanner data, shop stewards intervene. Uh, you do know that you can't spire use covert techniques, right? Well, that's not use inspiring to, the unions agreed that we can do this. I need you to show the letter carrier where the union has agreed to that. It's their day in court. It's not management's day in court. It's our it's our day in court, right? It's the letter carrier's day in court. So, so we're not going to protect them just like an attorney would. Intervene. You do know that you can't spire use covert techniques against my letter carrier, right? You got to do street observations in an above board manner. You can't treetop. I want this shit on the record. And we're going to use M1458. M1458. I talk about all this stuff in my stationary event episode, but this stuff is getting out of hand. Okay? It's becoming more and more common because, like I said, they're trying to condition us. It's becoming more and more common. So, 1458, M1458 is what you need. So, let's make sure that we're getting uh, M1458 that talks about uh, MSB data cannot be the sole determinant for discipline. All right? We're going to use that in every one of these. Make sure that we're educating our carriers on what to say. Just tell them what to say. Shit, I'm tired of just kind of, this is what I would say. Tell the carriers, say, I'm delivering, I was working. I'm delivering, I'm working. Intervene on your carrier's behalf. All right? Where are you getting that from? Do you know, you know that you can't, according to, in accordance with section 134 of the M39 handbook, you cannot spire use covert techniques. All right, make sure that we're getting that on the record, okay? That was a lot for that, that one little topic right there. I'm sorry. Here's another thing, another topic. And this is something that's happening more and more often. I've heard this so much here. Like I've never heard of this before, but so many of these are coming into me. I'm going to address this one, all right? 
This person says, how do you approach this? New asshole supervisor sending people home and or making them buy shoes at Walmart on basis the shoes they have previously been wearing for months prior aren't uniform approved shoes. Some of these people don't even have uniform allowance yet. Some do, but it wasn't enough to buy everything. I'm hearing more and more of that. Supervisors telling carriers they need to go to the store and buy shoes and the carriers are doing it. Shop stewards, don't let that happen. Don't let, tell the carrier, don't do that. If they send the carrier home, file a grievance and get them reimbursed for the time that they were at home. You cannot make me go buy shit. I'm not going to go buy shoes. If I've got a new CCA that gets a clothing allowance, if it's somewhere up north, just about every bit of that's going to go on winter clothes. You're probably not going to be able to buy a good pair of shoes. Down in the south, it rains a lot, so I'm going to have a lot of rain gear. That's a fortune. That's an entire allotment. I'm probably not going to have enough to buy shoes. Right? So if I spend all my money on uniforms and rain gear, I'm not going to have enough to buy shoes because they're a fortune. So what do they do? I'm not going to spend my own money to buy a damn thing. If management is telling me, go to the store and buy shoes, I'm not doing it. Period. I will do it when I get my next allotment, but I'm not going to go buy anything. That's why I have a clothing allowance. Right? So I'll tell them when I get my next clothing allowance, I'll buy some shoes with that. But until then, I'm going to wear these that I have on my feet right now. If they say, well, you need to go home. Okay, I'll go home. Thank you. And shop stewards file a grievance for them to get them reimbursed at that time. I have several, several arbitration sites for you. Uh, I'm going to read to you. <clears throat> Dealing with this very thing, okay? Uh, this will help you out as far as the issue statement, as far as what to ask for, okay? Um, <clears throat> several sites. It's C11163, C11163. And this is from uh, Arbitrator Talmadge. She's very good. But it was this same thing. Uh, Sent a carrier home because they came in wearing improper shorts. And here's what the arbitrator said. There's little dispute that management has the right to promulgate and to enforce reasonable rules relating to employees' dress and grooming while at work. When dress and attire are challenged, the arbitrator's task is to determine whether a particular restriction is to serve a legitimate interest of the employer. While Article 3 of the National Agreement accords postal management with considerable discretion, it is well established that an unreasonable exercise of management's rights should not be enforced. Okay, that's something that we'll copy and paste. It is well established that an unreasonable exercise of management's rights should not be enforced. That is a powerful statement. She goes on, The best summary of current arbitral standards is provided by arbitrator Peter Maniscalco, where he observed, There must be a showing of a reasonable relationship between the company's image, health, or safety considerations, and the need to regulate employee appearance. Therefore, management's right to regulate in this area is not absolute. Its exercise in any specific manner may be challenged as arbitrary, capricious, 
or inconsistent with the obligation for which the right is being exercised. That is the language that we want to use. That language right there, okay? I'll read it again. There must be a showing of a reasonable relationship between the company's image, health, or safety considerations, and the need to regulate employees' appearance. Therefore, management's right to regulate in this area is not absolute. That's powerful right there. It's not absolute. That means you do not have absolute authority over me when it comes to certain things. Its exercise in any specific manner may be challenged as arbitrary, capricious, or inconsistent with the obligation for which the right is being exercised. Get this sight. She goes on, on the, the obligation of the management to provide a safe working place is not challenged. The arbitrator, though most reluctant to enter the fray as to the service's concern, however, cannot find after considered reflection that there is any increased hazard or risk imposed on the employee when the length of the pants he or she wears is four inches above the knee rather than the presumed two inches. So management was making the the carrier have shorts that were two inches above the knee rather than four. The arbitrator admittedly is not qualified to make an anatomical or physiological or clinical evaluation. The burden of proof to sustain the allegation of added safety hazard must be met by the service. The arbitrator was not persuaded that it has met this challenge. The service takes the position that the employees knew the rules and regulations. As is true of other facility work rules, safety rules must be adequately communicated to the employees in some manner. The arbitrator cannot find in the particular circumstances adequate notice of the dress rules had been given. The evidence fails to show any def definite announcement of a walking shorts policy whose length should be no more than two inches above the knee. It was not con controverted that the pronouncement of policy was not circulated until July 23rd of 1987. The alleged infractions occurred August 6, 1986, July 1987, July 1987. There was no showing that the service had provided actual or constructive notice of the dress code prior to the imposition of the discipline, namely the respective employees having been told to go home, not to work, and request or use their annual leave account or lose a day's earnings. That's exactly what we're talking about here, right? Accordingly, in the instant circumstances, the arbitrator concludes the Postal Service recredit their respective agreements with the hours of annual leave for time they were not permitted to work. And that's exactly what you're going to need. Anybody that's being sent home because they don't have on good shoes, because they have no allotment, I'm going to grieve it. And I'm using this site, C11163, and these will be up on, on the formatearbitration.com. It's Arbitrator Talmadge. If they are sending our carriers home because they're saying they do not have on the proper attire, I'm grieving that. Okay? We have very minimal funds for our uniforms. If it's snowing and, and I buy a winter coat and winter pants and some slip-on shoes, that's all my allotment. I got another one. See, 13221. 13221. And it's arbitrator herbs. Here's this discussion. As both parties have argued, Article 26 sets out certain parameters in regard to the uniform to be worn by certain postal employees. Article 26 states that employees shall be furnished a uniform and that they shall be reimbursed for the purchase of such uniform. 
The parties have then negotiated a uniform allowance and the procedures to be followed in the administration of that allowance. In the instant case, the three employees who, by this grievance, seek reimbursement, had exhausted their uniform allowance prior to the purchase of the socks which are at issue. So here's three carriers that had already bought everything that they could buy, and management is forcing them to go buy socks. Management's witness acknowledges this fact. All these employees are more than three months away from the issuance of their new uniform allowance. The union has acknowledged the Postal Service's right to change the applicable uniform for affected carriers. It argues, however, that if the uniform change is made without sufficient time to secure the uniform, then it is the responsibility of the Postal Service to either supply the uniform or reimburse the employees to secure the uniform on their own. Management obviously disagrees with the union's position and relies in large part on its right to police the appearance of the carriers. In the arbitrator's opinion, the case is not as clear-cut as either side suggests. The arbitrator has neither found nor been cited to any specific requirement which defines before December 1, 1993, the exact type of socks to be worn by employees wearing culottes. Admittedly, the Postal Service has argued that the only acceptable socks were the black socks. Yet the evidence did not support that argument, at least insofar the Lincoln Park Station was concerned. True, one management witness stated that years ago she had been sent home for wearing footies. On the other hand, the union's evidence, which was not rebutted by management, indicated that female carriers at this station had been wearing culottes with footies or anklets for a considerable period of time, all without objection. The arbitrator credits these witnesses and must accordingly find that footies and or anklets were an accepted part of the uniform at Lincoln Park for some period of time. It is noted that in 1991, a more specific sock directive was issued. It goes on, it appears clear that it was only after the new uniform regulations were issued and after a complaint from a mail carrier. Now, why would you do that? Why would a mail carrier give a damn what another carrier is wearing? That just pisses me off right there when I see a carrier snitching on other carriers. I just wish I wouldn't have read that. After a complaint from a mail carrier that local management unilaterally decided to accelerate the new sock requirements. Nevertheless, the regulations which were issued indicated that although the new socks were authorized in March of 1992, there was also to be a fairly long phase-in period. Thus, as laudable as uniformity and appearance may be among the carriers, this was not a specific requirement that governed the issue presented herein, and management's case can only extend so far on this point. Even the June 1991 Postal Bulletin references that there are no specific requirements for culottes. Then it goes on to express the intention of the National Committee in regard to socks, but did not go so far as to forbid anything but bright socks. Management went beyond encouraging employees to comply with the intention expressed. Not only did local management direct these employees to secure the new socks, which the arbitrator believes did in fact occur, but management also threatened discipline if the carriers did not have the new socks within a very short period of time. That's exactly what we've been talking about. That's exactly what that person sent me. They told the CCA to go get new shoes at Walmart or else. And so they went and got new shoes at Walmart. That's exactly what they're talking about. You need to go get the, the socks. And if you're, and you're going to give you discipline if the carriers not have the new socks in a short period of time. Local management should have known, or at least had the ability to know, 
that the affected carriers no longer had any uniform allowance for the particular period involved. From an equitable standpoint, management might have considered delaying the threat of discipline until such time as the new uniform allowance for these carriers was in place. Yet it gave no such consideration to the problem, nor did it even give a hint that such a possibility might be available. Instead, it issued the directive coupling the directive with the threat of discipline. Goes on, neither party has cited to the arbitrator any decisions on matters even close to the facts presented in this case. However, after reviewing the unique circumstances of this case and based solely upon the facts that are presented in this case, it is the opinion of the arbitrator that the Postal Service issued inappropriate directives to these three employees. As a result of those inappropriate directives, coupled with the threat of discipline, these employees are required to spend their own money prior to the time when it would otherwise be required. Management's actions are therefore deemed to be in error. And he, and he made them pay them back for those socks. So if, you're, if you have management telling your carriers they've got to go buy something, grieve it and get them reimbursed. Use that site. 13221, okay? Here's another one. C08170. C08170. And this is arbitrator Renfro. And this is where they sent a carrier home for the same thing. And this is where carriers weren't wearing the right socks. And he goes in part and he says, Under normal circumstances, the arbitrator would hesitate to disturb management's enforcement of a valid regulation. Employees are expected to comply with known and valid rules. If Grievant had deliberately or negligently dis disregarded the knee sock requirement without compelling reason, she would be hard put to complain about the consequences. However, the facts involved in grievance predicament cry out for the exercise of flexibility and the use of discretion in seeking sensible resolution. That's what we're looking for right there. After reviewing her case on an individual basis, as suggested by Mr. Marcello's letter, grievance was pregnant. The weather was warm. She was permitted to wear culottes without knee socks or maternity shorts with knee socks. Grievant could and did wear the shorts, along with proper blouse and a cap with postal insignia, but she could not wear knee socks. She did wear pads, which are described as golf socks, which cover the foot but not the ankle and calf. She went as far as she could to comply with the station manager's direction. The station manager did not respond in kind with an appropriate exercise of reasonableness or discretion. And that's exactly the language we're going to use against management to sending our carriers out to buy shoes. <laughs> or to buy anything before we get our next allotment. The existence of a rule or regulation which management has the right to enforce does not imply the right to rigidly enforce it without consideration of particular circumstances such as medical incapacity to comply. The power to enforce a rule does not imply the right to letter enforcement in each and every case. It is implied that management will exercise its discretion in a rational in formal manner after weighing all the facts and circumstances involved. This principle is nothing new. It is fundamental to the concept of just cause where discipline is contemplated for violating a rule or where questions arise concerning employees' temporary inability to perform all the duties of a job. The same principle is implicit in considering management's application of uniform requirements in this case. Finally, management may justify the strict and literal enforcement of a rule that clearly requires such enforcement. Here, 
Management made no attempt to demonstrate some overriding importance to enforcing a NESOC standard in all cases and under all circumstances. It rested its case on the rule and its belief that a station manager has no flexibility or discretion to enforce it in a reasonable or sensible manner. The same inflexible attitude was exhibited in making no attempt to accommodate grievance when a light-duty assignment at another station was offered which was burdensome for grievance because of a work schedule different from her children's school schedule. In finding that the grievance is sustained in this case, the arbitrator finds the appropriate remedy is to make grievance whole for her lost pay during the period of May 10th through June 27th. That's the time that they wouldn't let her work. So there's y'all some great decisions on that. That'll help you out. I hate all this reading. I know it's boring as hell. But that's great language for y'all when y'all have idiot-ass managers that are sending carriers out to buy their own uniforms, to buy their own shoes, to buy different kind of socks, and telling them that they have to do that or else. Those are three good sites for you there, okay? That'll help you. Uh, we need to be grieving that. And tell your carriers don't go buy clothes. If they're waiting on their uniform allowance, don't go buy clothes. All right? I, I know they get scared because management threatens them. But tell them don't go buy clothes. Here's another thing that's been brought to my attention. And we're just going to keep on going. Here's a question about 204Bs. Why doesn't the damn union fight to get rid of them? <laughs> Article 41 just simply circumvents the 1723, and they can basically stay a 204B forever without their route going up for bid. And not to mention the stupidity that the union allows them to continue to be union members who can come to meetings. The 204B position has been a real hot topic in our offense over the past several years, and but surely the union can fight for stronger language to get the many issues with 204Bs ironed out. So this is a hot topic as well, 204Bs that circumvent Article 41. When they, before the 120 days, four months, they'll come back uh, for a week or two and then go back to 204B. We call that circumventing Article 41. So I'm going to read to you a couple of sites on this as well and some language, okay? Uh, sorry about all the reading, but that's just how it's going to be today. Here's the 204B, all right? Letter carriers temporary detail to a supervisory position, 204B, have an ambiguous status, their hybrid nature, being neither fish nor fowl, inevitably causes problems. Article 41, Section 1A3 seeks to mitigate these problems by requiring that management inform the local union whenever a letter carrier serves as a 204B. Y'all get that? So anytime a 204B is being assigned, that's 41, Section 1A3. And it states, Form 1723, Notice of Assignment shall be used in detailing letter carriers to temporary supervisor positions, 204B. The employer will provide the union at the local level with a copy of the Form 1723 showing the beginning and ending of all such details. While serving as supervisors, 204Bs are prohibited from performing any bargaining unit work except in the limited circumstances specified in Article 1, Section 6, and the emergency provisions of Article 3, Section F. While the application of these provisions have often been a contentious issue, most issues concerning 204Bs have been resolved. The lead case in the National Level Settlement, M891, which provides that 
an employee serving as a temporary supervisor, 204B, is prohibited from performing bargaining unit work except to the extent otherwise provided in Article 1, Section 6 of the National Agreement. Therefore, a temporary supervisor is ineligible to work overtime in the bargaining unit while detailed, even if the overtime occurs on a non-scheduled day. 2. Form 1723, which shows the times and dates of a 204B detail, is the controlling document for determining whether an employee is in 204B status. 3. Management may prematurely terminate a 204B detail by furnishing an amended Form 1723 to the appropriate union representative. In such cases, the amended Form 1723 should be provided in advance if the union representative is available. If the union representative is not available, the form shall be provided to the union representative as soon as practicable after he or she becomes available. Significantly, the settlement M891 provided that the available overtime desired list carrier receive eight hours of pay at the overtime rate as a remedy for allowing the 204B to perform bargaining unit work on the non-scheduled day of the 204B assignment. Did y'all get that? Significantly, the settlement M891 provided that the available overtime desired list carrier receive eight hours of pay at the overtime rate as a remedy for allowing a 204B to perform to perform bargaining unit work on a non-scheduled day of the 204B assignment. See also Pre-Arbitration Settlement M213, which provides for a similar remedy. The October 22, 1998 Step 4 Settlement M1351. Step 4 makes clear that these provisions apply to any supervisory detail, whether or not management characterizes it as a 204B assignment. It states, An employee, while detailed to an EAS position, may not perform bargaining unit overtime except as authorized by Article 3F of the National Agreement. The PS Form 1723 should accurately reflect the duration of the detail. The November 18, 1999 Step 4 Settlement M1397 clarified the long-standing issue over the information that must be provided on Form 1723. Management has sought merely to list the beginning and ending of the detail stating that the carry would serve as a 204B as needed during the specific time period. This is not sufficient. The settlement provides that the Form 1723 will accurately reflect the dates the employee will be in a 204B status. Occasionally, managers have sought to use letter carriers to perform bargaining unit overtime immediately after they have concluded a 204B assignment. This is not permitted. The Step 4 Decision M1177 provides that the issue in this case is whether management violated the national agreement when an employee who had been working in a 204B assignment earlier in the day worked bargaining unit overtime at the conclusion of this shift. During our discussion, we agreed to the following. Listen to this now. An acting supervisor, 204B, will not be utilized in lieu of a bargaining unit employee for the purpose of bargaining unit overtime. 2. The PS Form 1723 shall determine the time and date an employee begins and ends the detail. 3. An employee detailed to an acting supervisory position will not perform bargaining unit overtime immediately prior to or immediately after such detail unless all available bargaining unit employees are utilized. 
That's a hot topic. Let me read that one again. An employee detailed to an acting supervisor position will not perform bargaining unit overtime immediately prior to or immediately after such detail unless all available bargaining unit employees are utilized. Four, due to the variety of situations that could arise, each case should be decided based on the particular facts and circumstances involved. The phrase immediately, prior to or immediately after such detail in this settlement refers to overtime on a day the carrier is in a 204B status. It is not prohibited overtime otherwise consistent with the provisions of Article 8 on the day before or the day after a 204B detail. A separate set of issues arises from NALC's constitutional prohibition against supervisors, including 204B's holding union office for a period of two years after serving as a supervisor. These issues are discussed at length in the fall 1992, fall 1999 issue of the NALC activist. So there's a little information on 204Bs. I've got some sites I'm going to read to you. <laughs> it's a lot of reading, isn't it? I told you it's going to be a lot of reading. I'm sitting here in my postal uniform, but I got to get this out. I got to get this out. Um, I'm going to read some sites to you about management attempting to circumvent uh, Article 41 when they send 204Bs back down and then back up. Okay? So I'm going to read from these sites. These will be good sites for you. Again, all these sites are going to be up on formatearbitration.com. You can read them yourself, but I'm going to go over them here. Okay? The first one is C number 05230. C05230. And it's arbitrator Daniel Jacobowski. Okay? Talking about management circumventing Article 41. In the issue, did the carrier's temporary 204B promotion to supervisor exceed four months, and did the service violate the contract by not posting the carrier's position for bid, or instead was the claimed fourth-month period broken by the carrier's one-week return to her letter carrier position? And it's got the contract language, Article 41, Section 1A2, provides as follows, letter carrier's temporary detail to the supervisor position, the duty assignment of a full-time carrier detailed to a supervisory position, including a supervisory training program, in excess of four months shall be declared vacant and shall be posted for bid in accordance with this article. Upon return to the craft, the carrier will become an unassigned regular. A letter carrier temporary detailed to a supervisory position will not be returned to the craft solely to circumvent the provisions of Section 1A2. All right, so there it is, right, right on the front page. If you're looking for the language, right on the front page, there it is. And here's this discussion. He talks about the union's position and management's position, and it's a long one. Sorry. In general, as I have reviewed and analyzed the evidence and factors in this case, I have consistently found myself deciding in favor of the union on the general question and concluding that, in reality, Carrie Murphy had one continuous assignment as a temporary supervisor in excess of four months and that the one-week return to her carrier position did not constitute an actual break in the con continuity of that assignment as claimed by the service. My reasons for this conclusion are next further discussed below. I recognize the additional distinctive aspect of the issue over the union's additional claim that the one-week return was only for the purpose of defeating the contract provisions. That will be discussed later. So here's a 204B that came back one week just to break that four-month period, 120 days, okay? 
So this this 204B came back one week and then went back up. And they're saying, hey, that one week broke that four month, broke that 120 days consecutive, okay? Which is what happens all the time. And that's how management attempts to circumvent Article 41. And he's going to tell you here how the union showed or how the union proved their position. He's going to show you here how the union proved their position. And it's a very good read. It's a long read, but it's very good. And the union did a great job. As all the equitable factors are weighed together, they support the general conclusion and collective result that in the main, on the substance and merit, and in the actual reality, she was given an assignment and performing duties as a temporary supervisor over this general period, and that her one-week return as a carry was not an actual break, but more in the nature itself of only being a temporary interruption or release for a few days, after which she was expected to return and continue as a supervisor. The various facts equable lean in this direction and support this conclusion, among them the following. The wording inserted on Form 1723, the assignment assignment or transfer form, indicates its more long-term and definite nature rather than a more limited fill-in for a specific single person or purpose. The term is recited as indefinite. On the first March 12, 1984 assignment form, the reasons identified are for annual leave, detail, and etc. The same type of broadness and indefinite period is similarly listed on the second assignment form, returning her as a supervisor on June 2, 1984. Similarly, as the circumstances are examined surrounding her return to the care duties in that last week of May, the overall impression and effect is not that a break in her assignment as a supervisor was being affected, but merely that she was only being temporarily released for a few days' work as a carrier and then expected to return to continue as a supervisor. Several pertinent factors are supportive. One is the manager's initial reluctance and finally agreeing to release her only upon the pressing schedule and need request of the assignment supervisor. Consistent with this on the original schedule, she was only scheduled to work two days as a carrier and the other two days in the same week as a supervisor. Even after her schedule was shortly changed to work the full week as a carrier, she still was called back to work as a short amount of as a supervisor within the week. In essence and substance, then this indicates that management was generally regarding her as a supervisor over this entire period and that in only being temporarily released for a few days as a carrier, it did not breach that continuity. In my opinion, this conclusion is fully and comfortably consistent with the contract language in Article 41, Section 1A2, in particular, the first sentence of the second paragraph, which contains the four-month reference. In interpreting provisions, it is fundamental that one affords into words and language their normal meaning and general substantive intent. Normally, clauses are afforded their general broad intent and purpose rather than applied with a narrow, restrictive manner. Unless so expressly recited or so understood from the general context, here the pertinent language simply contains a general broad reference to the period of four months. There is no narrowness or restrictiveness implied or suggested that would preclude or exclude from the four-month span. The brief period of the several days here at issue under our circumstances described. In point is the fact that on its face the purpose of the clause is positive in nature to provide a specific benefit or posting bid or opportunity rather than a setting forth of a negative restrictions as to when or when not such a clause shall be applied. 
It is a fundamental or interpretation to give a clause and benefit its normal intended meaning and scope. For these reasons, then, I find and conclude that Murphy's assignment as a supervisor did exceed four months, and its continuity was not broken by the one-week carry assignment. In, this, in reaching this conclusion, the arbitrator is well aware that a different conclusion might be reached on a different set of circumstances. The brevity of the several days or week alone is not the key determination, although it is a consideration factor. More determinative is the substance of the supervisory assignment itself, its continuity and expected continuation nature. Next discussed is a second related question of whether the union has proven its related claim that the only reason for the weak return as a carrier was to circumvent the contract four-month provision. Here we go. Admittedly, that consideration can be regarded as relatively moot in view of the, ab- of the above conclusion that the one week did not de- constitute a break. Nevertheless, it is also within the submission of the parties for a decision. In general, I feel the union has presented the better case on this point with greater persuasiveness in its direction. And among the reasons are the following. Management stated that it returned Murphy as a carrier based on its scheduling needs that week. And that's something you're going to have to pay attention to when you're trying to combat management trying to circumvent Article 41. They're going to say, hey, we needed them that week. We're short-staffed. They had to go back for that one week, and then they came right back up. So that's not a break. They're going to say that that was an unexpected occurrence like they did here and that they went straight back up so that the 120 days should not be broken. That's what they're stating here. It says, management stated that return Murphy is a carrier based upon its scheduling needs that week. All right, so here's what the union did. Yet in the evidence, the union presented a substantial challenge by its showing of figures that the annual and sick leave absences that week were way below average and that their lower points over the several periods compared. I don't feel that the service effectively met this particular challenge. There are additional supportive factors for the union. Murphy was allowed to leave early after only one half day on the very first Saturday. Practically all the PTFs were available and for the full week since they are not given holidays as such. Coupled with this is the retained continuity of her supervisory assignment already discussed above and as reflected by the supervisory duties assigned and performed by her that week. Also, the arbitrator here notes that the service never really explained why they assigned her the first two days as a carrier originally, and why they later changed the assignment shortly after into the fuller week. The effect of these factors when weighed together is that the union did raise a substantive challenge to the scheduling needs claimed. The challenge was not satisfactorily fully refuted by the service. Its reference to volume is not persuasive as compared with the union's response of irrelevancy and in recognition that the volume of the week was registered only after the experience of the week, without proof it affected the scheduling specifically at issue. On the face of these factors, there is support for the conclusion that the service has not effectively proven its case, and claim that there is a valid scheduling need for which reason Murphy was returned as a carrier. In the face of the total context and circumstances, one can then understand why the union rationalized in its conclusive judgment that the only or primary reason for the transfer back was to defeat the contract clause. Yet, there is arguability that this amount of persuasiveness in the union's directive falls short of the union providing its, proving its position. 
The burden of proof is on the union, not on the service. This arbitrator has studied the various scheduling sheets and data supplied by the parties. While acknowledging the union's challenge and the lack of management's convincing proof, I'm not satisfied that the evidence shows that management did not have any scheduling need problems as claimed that week. To the contrary, there still remains some evidence that management might have had legitimate scheduling needs and problems of some of the nature it claimed, even if not adequately articulated or as extensive as the service claims. For example, the week was unusual in that it had the holiday. A number of the TD6s were unavailable both that week and in the preceding week. A number of persons had their holiday scheduled on their preceding Saturday because that actual holiday fell on their rotating scheduled days off. Some employees actually worked on their scheduled days off, and there were a few changes of leaves which arose for several individuals, both sick and annual. Recognition of these factors does lend some support for the claim of the service that it had valid scheduling needs, even if not better proven or articulated. Again, the burden of proof is on the union. He goes on, however, the arbitrator does return to his original earlier finding and conclusion recited above, and in general, on the broad question, does repeat the general conclusion in favor of the union that the one-week return of Murphy as a carrier did not constitute a break in the continuity of her service as a temporary supervisor, which in turn exceeded four months and which further then required the service to post-forbid her basic carrier position. By not so posting it, the service violated the Article 41, Section 1A2 provision of the contract. Next, as, as to the specific posting relief requested, in presenting the case, the parties primarily dealt with the presentation of the question at issue and did not address themselves in detail to the matter of implementation in the event the arbitrator decided in the union's favor. The parties notably did not elaborate on what happened after the grievance or as to the current status of Murphy or her care position. Accordingly, if there is any further issue over the implementation of posting under this decision or a related need for the clarification, the arbitrator is willing to retain jurisdiction in the event the parties so further submit a request. And so he ordered the route put up for bid. He said that they did circumvent Article 41. So there's one for you. Here's another one. i got to hurry up. This is uh, C-13823. C-13823, all right? And this is another violation of Article 41 where management has been found to circumvent. This is not nearly as long. That guy's was long. The union prevailed in this dispute on the matter of whether a violation occurred, but not insofar as the monetary remedies are concerned. It is simply too convenient that carrier spec would be needed up to just before the four-month limit would take effect and they'd be returned to 204B status for a couple of weeks. The service's explanation that he was not needed fails when it is pointed out that the service had to press regular supervisors into duty on their days off during their hiatus. The service's assertion that it would have kept the grievance in 204B status had he been needed is tantamount to an admission that it would have knowingly violated the four-month limit if it had chosen to do so. In fact, it did so anyway. While the service also asserted that an overriding need existed for Speck to work his route for the two-week period involved, it offered no proof in that regard. The record indicates that his return to the craft the second time on November 29th followed a period when he took annual leave, November 20th through 26th. 
presumably while in a 204B status. The need for his return to his route at that point is obvious, the onslaught of Christmas mail. Both parties offered prior arbitration awards in support of their contrasting positions. This is not a case where the carrier involved requested return to his or her bid assignment to protect it, a right clearly protected by the agreement, nor is it a case where the service was alternating employees for training purposes. Carrier Spec obviously was well-trained and competent. I'm persuaded that the return of Carrier Spec to his bid assignment on October 15th for a two-week period before returning him to the 204B post was a pretextual attempt to avoid application of Article 41, Section 1A2. It is unfortunate that Spec himself may be the loser in this case, but the agreement is clear as to what is to be required. His bid assignment is to be posted per Article 41 in field, and given no other alternative action, he is to be an unassigned regular. I am obliged to issue just such an order, which is to be carried out without delay. The union's demand for compensation to the awardee of such bid assignment is not affirmed. So there's another good decision for you. He didn't buy it either that management just conveniently sent this carrier down for a week prior to the four-month period was over, just to protect his route, uh, he didn't buy it. And so there's another good decision for you. See, 13823. We're moving right along, right? What we got so far? We got T-Rap, addressed that a little bit. We got stationary events, we addressed that a little bit. We've got management making us buy our own clothing, uh, shoes, whatever. We addressed that a little bit. 204Bs, circumventing Article 41, trying to keep the routes. We addressed that a little bit. All right, where are we at? Am I going too fast? I hope not. Here's another thing that, that comes to me a lot lately. A lot. And it's management 204Bs um, being bullies. And I've addressed this all the time, the JSOV episodes and stuff like that. More and more people are contacting me about what they can do uh, because they have a bully. They have uh, one guy called, said they have a clerk that's a terror in there that's harassing all the carriers. Uh, the clerk is, is terrible. Management refuses to address it. We've got 204Bs that are acting a fool. Uh, there's going to be more and more pressure on these 204Bs and supervisors and managers to act a fool because of these route adjustments. Uh, that's some serious stuff going on right now with this T-Rap. Management has lost their ass, like I said, and they are coming after us. So we're going to have to be prepared, okay? Uh, we just are. So how are we going to address that? We're going to address it through the grievance procedure, there's Section 115.4 of the M39, maintaining mutual respect. Are we going to deal with it through the JSOV, the joint statement? Uh, is that how we're going to handle it? This is what I would do first, and this is what I tell anybody that calls me, emails me, messages me. This is what I'm going to do first, okay? And I want this on the record, and that's the reason I, I want this done, is if you have a bully, if you have a clerk that's being a fool, if you have a supervisor, a 204B, a manager that's acting a fool, and, and they're making threatening comments, threatening gestures, and they're, they're being divisive on your workroom floor, they're being disruptive on your workroom floor, 
Uh, this is what I want you to do. On the Postal Service Policy on Workplace Harassment, and you can find that if you go, if you Google that, Postal Service Policy on Workplace Harassment, you can find that. Matter of fact, if you Google anything, you can find it. A, a lot of times people have questions. They'll ask me about things. I'll just Google it. <laughs> I'll say whatever, and then I'll put NALC and Google it, and it'll pull up what you're looking for. 99.9% .9 of the time, if you Google something, if you have an issue with something, uh, supervisors doing craft work, uh, whatever. If you Google that, put NALC and uh, search it, you'll find something on it. That's all I do. That's all I do with it. If you ask me, I'll just say, yeah, hang on just a second. I'll Google it and I'll send it to you. So anyway, if you Google the Postal Service Policy on Workplace Harassment, um, this is what it says under Management Responsibility, okay? All managers, now I've read this before, and this is something that we, when we take management to hearing on joint statement cases, this is one of the most important things, is what I'm fixing to read to you. And this is what you're going to need to start doing. All managers and supervisors are responsible for preventing harassment and inappropriate behavior that could lead to illegal harassment and must respond promptly when they learn of any such conduct. Any manager or supervisor who receives a complaint must see that a prompt and thorough investigation is conducted. Investigation of all forms of harassment must be done in accordance with the initial Management Inquiry Process, IMIP. Materials are available in Publication 552. Manager's Guide to Understanding, Investigating, and Preventing Harassment. When harassment or inappropriate conduct is found, managers must take prompt and effective corrective action. All right? Now, that's under the Postal Service Policy on Workplace Harassment. That's the very first thing that we're going to do. If you got a 204B or supervisor that's acting a fool, what we're going to do is we're going to lodge a formal complaint. We're going to get it in writing, a statement, and we're going to hand it to the supervisor, to the postmaster. We're going to keep a copy, and we're going to say, hey, I've now put you on notice of a, a threat or, or one of my carriers is being harassed. And so now you're obligated under Postal Service Policy on Workplace Harassment under management's responsibility, you're obligated under Publication 552 to initiate an initial management inquiry process. Just get that down. And that's what you're going to say. I'll read that again. All managers and supervisors, it didn't say some or most. It said all, A-L-L. -L. All managers and supervisors are responsible for preventing harassment and inappropriate behavior that could lead to illegal harassment. It didn't say all carriers, right? It didn't say all city carriers or all clerks or all rural carriers. It says all managers and supervisors are responsible for preventing harassment and inappropriate behavior that could lead to illegal harassment and must respond promptly when they learn of any such conduct. Make sure you emphasize those words. Any manager or supervisor who receives a complaint must see that a prompt and thorough investigation is conducted. 
investigations of all forms of harassment must be done in accordance with the initial management inquiry process, IMIP. Materials are available in Publication 552. So here's Publication 552. I'm not going to read all of it, just a little bit of it. Okay, and this is where we're coming from. All right, we're talking about Publication 552. Steps for managers to address workplace harassment. And this is Publication 552. It's right at the beginning. Page one. It says, one, respond promptly. If approached with harassment if approached with her harassment complaint or situation, schedule a meeting in private location. Review relevant information, policies, and procedures. Listen objectively. Advise on confidentiality, responsibility, and rights. Address, sensitiv- address sensitivity of situation during inquiry. Two, obtain information. Define issue, nature, and scope. Consider safety issues, reporting structure. Communicate Employee employee Assistance Program, EAP, and Equal Employment Opportunity, EEO options. Inform and confer with Manager Human Resources, Local, District, or Area Office for Headquarters, Headquarters and Headquarter Field Units, Manager Human Resources, Headquarters. Discuss remedies. If further inquiry is warranted, proceed to initial management inquiry process. Three, begin the IMIP. Gather IMIP forms. Arrange separate interviews for all parties involved. Advise on IMIP process. Gather detailed data. Request a written statement. Establish timelines for follow-up. Review checklist on page 25. If, in the course of this IMIP, you believe that the nature and scope of the complaint warrants outside investigation or that resolution is not feasible, you must refer the complaint to manager, HR, local district, or area office for headquarters and headquarters field units, manager, HR, headquarters. Four, evaluate information. Assess credibility of statements. Gather missing data. Identify the type of harassment discussed. Evaluate employment status change. Inform and confer with manager, HR, local district, or area office. The immediate supervisor in your local district, area office, or headquarters and headquarters field units may consult with field counsel, labor relations office, or headquarters counsel to determine the appropriate remedy or disciplinary action. If criminal action has occurred, notify the Postal Inspection Service and local law enforcement. Report to the Office of Inspector General any use of electronic devices, computer, or internet to transmit harassing communications. All right. Five, plan of action. Consult about remedies or discipline with manager HR and labor relations for headquarters and headquarters field units. Ensure that the investigation was conducted properly. Deliver the determination separately to harasser and harassee. Emphasize retaliation is illegal. Report future incidents. Resolve issues. Document action taken. Send IMIP documents to manager, HR, local district, or area. 
The manager HR will ensure the completed inquiry is entered into the workplace environment tracking system, WETS. Okay? The manager HR will ensure the completed inquiry is entered into the workplace environment tracking system. Six, follow up. Maintain confidentiality. Convey Postal Service's zero tolerance harassment policy in remedial training, stand up talks, staff meetings. Educate yourself and personnel on up to date policy. Enforce Postal Service policy. Follow up and monitor the workplace. All of that has to be done. When I, when I turn in a, requ- a complaint, that's the reason I want these things done initially. All of that shit right there must be done. Okay. So when, if I've got a supervisor that's acting a fool and I'd lodge a formal complaint, however it be through a grievance procedure, if I file a grievance, that's a formal complaint. If I write a statement and I give it to my branch president who gives it to the postmaster, that's a formal complaint. If I write a statement and give it to my shop steward and he takes it to the station manager and says, here's a formal complaint from a letter carrier against your supervisor or 204B, that's a formal complaint. And when, as soon as they get that, this must be done. It says, number one, respond promptly. Okay, so I'm going to hand that to them. And in two days, I'm going to go back to them as a shop steward. I'm going to say, Show me what you've done about the complaint that I've turned in. Well, I talked to the supervisor. That's not what you're supposed to do. What have you done? I need any email transmission you've had about this uh, complaint. And here's what it says on page two. And this is what, what we use in arbitration all the time on page two. Overview of steps. If an employee reports a harassment complaint or situation to you, Your role as a manager is to stop, listen, inquire, and try to resolve the harassment complaint. Keep in mind that the employee is trying to address a sensitive topic. I'm going to read that again. Overview of steps. If an employee reports a harassment complaint or situation to you, your role as a manager is to stop, listen, inquire, and try to resolve the harassment complaint. Keep in mind that the employee is trying to address a sensitive topic. One, respond promptly. And here's what it it goes over all these things again, except it it explains it for you. And this is the only one we use. One, respond promptly to the complaint regardless of its form or content. And And that's the most important thing. Respond promptly to the complaint regardless of its form or content. A statement. A grievance right? Regardless of its form or content. Remember that you could receive a complaint with no prior warning. Any report of harassment is enough to start an inquiry. You got that? That's what I just talked about. Any report of harassment is enough to start an inquiry. I give you a piece of paper. I'm feeling harassed and here's what's happened. It's the 204B right out there on the floor right now that's doing it. I need a copy of this. I'm going to initial this that I gave it to you at this time. Here's my formal complaint. Shop stewards, you take over. All right? And you're going to hand this to management. Hey, look here. Here's a publication 552. 
This is what it talks about, the IMIP process. I'm not sure if you're aware of it, Mr. Postmaster or Madam Postmaster. I'm not sure if you're aware of this here, but under the Postal Service Policy on Workplace Harassment, it says management's responsibilities, and in that responsibility is something that's called Publication 552. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but this is what it is. And look here, this is what we're going to this is what we're going to talk about here real quick. Uh, right here it says respond promptly to the complaint regardless of its form or content. I do know that I've given you a statement from this city letter carrier talking about the 204B, uh, how they've harassed them, they feel threatened and bullied. And so uh, it says, remember that you could receive a complaint with no prior warning. Any report of harassment is enough to start an inquiry. All right, so I need to know what you've done. Okay, because I handed you this statement two days ago. I need to know that you, what you've done as far as starting an inquiry. And if you could show me that uh, in, through an email or whatever, well, we haven't done anything. Okay, then I'm going to file a grievance on you under Article 19 via the, the Postal Service Policy and Workplace Harassment, okay? And I'll have that for you in the morning um, because we're not going to tolerate this shit right here, all right? And so that's an obligation. That we have to start making management do their, their jobs. If they're obligated to do something, we have to make sure that they're doing it, period. They're obligated to do these things under the Postal Service Policy on Workplace Harassment. It's an obligation on management. So why are we letting them get away with not doing it? I'm going to hold them accountable for it. The, the 204B is going to become such a burden because I'm going to make the manager so busy doing these inquiries. Then the next day, if the 204B says someone working floor, so I hear somebody filed a complaint on me. We're going to be addressing that. His ass is going to get another one. And they're going to start another IMIP. And I'm going to file agreements on another manager for not doing what they're obligated to do. You see what I'm talking about? We've got to start taking the reins on this stuff. We've got to start fighting back. Plain and simple. They're coming after us with these stupid-ass stationary events and all that bullshit. We have got to start fighting back. We cannot keep cowering down. All right? So that's the publication 552, uh, the IMIP. It's an obligation. Make sure that we're, we're holding management accountable. When you go to them and they say that they have not done it, here's a site for you. <laughs> I got all kinds of sites, Donna. Shit. C30829. C30829. All right? This is about a 204B that's acting a fool. But this language is what I want in your contentions. All right. It's from uh, arbitrator Molly Bowers. And it's C30829. And this is what she says. This is fantastic. Allegations, if proven, of disrespectful, harassing, bullying, violent, and other related behaviors have been taken very seriously by both parties for decades. Now, I want you all to listen to how this lady just destroys management in this decision. It's one of the better written decisions that you'll ever find on the JSOV, and it will go hand-in-hand hand with what we're talking about on this publication 552 because you're going to see that management will not do anything. They're not going to initiate it because they don't want the headache of it. And when they don't, then we're going to file a 115.4 and a JSOV against the postmaster because they're condoning this behavior and the 204B or supervisor because they're the ones that are enacting this behavior, Okay. But here she says, 
Here she, she says the following. When employees are alleged to have engaged in such behaviors, service management has quickly put them on emergency placement, often with discipline, including discharge to follow. As demonstrated by this case and others, the service has not been as energetic where allegations of such misconduct, even if proven, are made against management personnel. This has seriously compromised its position and enforcement of Article 19 of the National Agreement, including the M39 and the JS uh, Joint Statement, is a two-way street. So she says what we always say in arbitration. Management can put me on emergency placement and fire me. They will never police their own. They will never handle their own. And she just calls her ass out on it right there. Based upon the credible evidence and testimony provided in this proceeding, the arbitrator determined that the union has met its burden of proving that Supervisor Baldwin was culpable for his behavior on August 17, 2012. By his own admission, Supervisor Baldwin was having problems adjusting to being promoted to a management position in the same office where he had served for many years as a letter carrier. This is not an uncommon experience in many employment settings where a person from the bargaining unit has been advanced to supervision at the same site, sans any training on how to manage the responsibility of the new position. Supervisor Baldwin was credited for his honesty in testifying that he had difficulty making the transition, especially given the pressures from both upper-level management and the carriers, well as the circumstances at the DDA at the time. The arbitrator also took judicious note that the union had worked to correct Supervisor Baldwin's behavior on four occasions by signing cease and desist agreements to resolve grievances filed against him prior to the instant case. None of these efforts came to any avail. She further noted that upper-level service management neither took notice of these agreements nor took any step to provide Supervisor Baldwin with Matt Supervisor Baldwin with management skills that would help him to correct his behavior. Again, she's calling her ass out on it, something that we talk about all the time. Management will never police their own. And she's basically just putting it on paper right here. She goes on to talk about what happened that caused this grievance about an interaction with another carrier. Based upon the credible testimony and the evidence of record, the arbitrator concluded that Supervisor Baldwin, again, engaged in errant behavior to the extent that he violated Article 19 of the National Agreement, including the M39 and the Joint Statement. It is irrelevant whether or not when Supervisor Baldwin pushed the U-cart towards the agreement that it hit her. The credible record is persuasive that Supervisor Baldwin was loud, slammed his pencil down, got into the agreement's face, and pushed the U-cart towards her. If behavior like this was engaged in by an employee in the bargaining unit, he, she would have been put on emergency placement immediately, pending further discipline. There is no evidence that even when a grievance was filed, upper-level management sought to discipline Supervisor Baldwin for violating Article 19, the M39, and the Joint Statement, and to provide him with assistance that would enable him to perform supervisory duties in a professional and mutually respectful manner. Employees in the bargaining unit did not deserve to be subjected anymore to Supervisor Baldwin's misconduct. As a result of the, of the service's delinquency, and for the first time, this arbitrator finds not only that the grievance must be sustained, but also that remedies related to those requested by the union must be awarded. The remedy of, uh, asked for by the union is modified.
The arbitrator's ruling is that the service must demote Supervisor Baldwin to his previously letter carrier position effective immediately. So there's a good one for you. Uh, again, that's C30829, and that talks about um, management refusing to police their own. It's one of the best ones you'll see where she basically says management doesn't care. When management abuses carriers, management doesn't care. The only time management cares is when a carrier does something. And so that goes hand-in-hand hand with this publication 552, all right? All right, hey, look here, it's two hours. Uh, I'm going to do another one tomorrow, all right, because I don't know that my I don't know that my episodes can go much longer than this, and I've still got a lot to do um, episode-wise. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do another one tomorrow, and that will just be covering the Article 8, all right? So I got these things out of the way. I guess you could call it a salted peanuts type thing. Um, but we covered a, a lot of different subjects. I, I've just got to start getting these out of the way, start covering them, helping out as much as I can. I hate that I read so much. I think that it just bogs it down. It just, just like going through tar. Uh, it, it's painful. But I think we covered each one of those topics pretty well. So I'm just going to come back on tomorrow. I'll just do another one. All right. I'll do the uh, Article 8 tomorrow. There's a lot to that one. That one will be hours long, okay? It'll be four hours before I get done with this episode. I don't think that it will record that when I go to download it. I'm afraid that it won't do the whole thing, and so I don't want to waste that, all right? So uh, tomorrow I'll come back and do Article 8 because I can't do it Sunday because Mr. Karras going to come on and talk to you all about collective bargaining. So we covered a lot of topics right there. All right, I'll put it on the episode, the timestamps. When I go back and edit this thing, I'll write them down. And that way I can go, you know, at one hour, 30 minutes, I start talking about 204Bs. One hour, 50 minutes, I start talking about publication 552. All right, that way you can look on there. Y'all can skip through it, whatever you want to do. But uh, those are things that people have reached out about, told you I'd cover them. There you have it. I covered them for you, all right? So I will talk to you all tomorrow. I'll do another episode. It'll be Article 8, back-to-back, uh, -back, all right? I'm going to go take a shower. I'll talk to you all tomorrow. Bye.